This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, I am joined by Savannah Jane O'Malley. She is a wife and working mother of three former preemies, and she works full-time, uh, pursues her artistic passions part-time, and moms all the time. When her twin boys were born three and a half months early, everything she thought her life was supposed to be was shattered. The one-pound warriors spent their first three months fighting for the chance at life, despite being given many devastating diagnoses enduring countless ups and downs and achieving absolutely incredible triumphs. Going through all of this made her discover her true role as a mother and set her on a brand new trajectory. Through social media and writing, public speaking and painting, she is a voice of hope to families going through similar trials and an ally to people with disabilities, especially cerebral palsy like her son a cheerleader to families during their NICU stay, a mama mental health advocate, and a self-proclaimed spreader of reckless hope. She talks with us about her post-NICU mental health, her son's cerebral palsy diagnosis, and her Cards of Hope campaign, and how that helps mothers after a traumatic birth. And now we'll hear from Savannah. Welcome, Savannah. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Grateful that you are here to share your story. You know, stories are super important, not only in sometimes us talking about our own story helps us to heal a little bit, but other people hearing similar things to what they've been through is just so good. Even though you never want anyone to go through what you've been through, it's so nice to know that we're not alone if there's been a struggle. So I appreciate you coming on here and being open about your journey so that hopefully it can also help somebody else. Yeah, it's my honor. So thank you. Yeah, I welcome you to start wherever you'd like to start with your story. Yeah, so I am a mom of three preemies. Uh, My daughter was born at 36 weeks. And when she was two, I got pregnant with my twins. We didn't know the sexes and the pregnancy was pretty uneventful. 
And when I went, was 24 weeks pregnant, I went into preterm labor that they were unable to stop and the twins were born and and my family's lives were completely turned upside down. Uh, That was six years ago. Mm -hmm. And there were so many ups and downs throughout the NICU, but I'm happy to say that my boys survived and they came home before their due date. And my life has kind of been dedicated towards supporting and being a cheerleader for other families going through something similar and also to spread hope of what is possible because I have two little miracles to show other people. And I started sharing our story when the twins were about a year old. I'm a painter and I'm a writer. That's one of my outlets and how I process things. So I began blogging about what happened in that I was 101 days in the NICU where most of my family and my friends didn't really know like what was really going on. Um, They knew like a sugar-coated version. But my having this outlet, I was able to revisit all this stuff. I started sharing the story to find healing within myself. But as I started putting it out there, it started to snowball. And like what you were talking about, sharing stories makes us feel less alone. And that's exactly what has happened. So my I have a pretty good social media following from mothers who've been through similar trials. Some who have, you know, went through it 40, 50, 60 years ago, and some who are sitting in the NICU right now. So my mission has been just to spread hope. That's fantastic. Thank you for doing that because it does matter. It absolutely does matter. And it sounds like you're seeing that directly. You get hearing from a lot of people. I get messages and comments and emails all the time about this thing. It's like this club no one wants to be a part of, but we're so grateful we have each other because mm-hmm. you really can't explain it unless you've actually experienced it. But yeah. And I think a lot of it too is, I don't think it's so much about not being alone, but it's knowing you're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the bulk of the people who are identifying with your story, are they also parents who've had children in the NICU? Many, but also as I've continued to share our story, it's helped me understand and realize the birth trauma that I experienced as well as the medical trauma. While they were in the NICU, they both suffered brain bleeds around the time of birth. And my son, Lex, had his first surgery, which was heart surgery when he was four weeks old. And then a couple days later, his brother, Lachlan, had his first of three brain surgeries. And that brain surgery itself caused a second severe brain bleed and Mm -hmm. ultimately led to his cerebral palsy diagnosis, which which will be part of our lives forever. But there was just so much that happened. And they call the NICU a season of your life. But when you're in there, I mean, it feels like eternity. Mm -hmm. Every hour feels like a day. And I remember being in the hospital and I didn't want to hear about worst case scenario, all I wanted was to see hope. And so that a lot of what I share and why I do it is because I want to be that person I didn't have and I couldn't find when I was living in the NICU. Right. Well, fantastic. It sounds like, you know, it's resonating with so many people. If you can, you, you did mention that your daughter's birth was also premature. Was it at the same 
stage of pregnancy as with your sons? No, my daughter's, I was put on bed rest at 28 weeks with my daughter. And I ended up staying on bed rest for two months or a little over two months. And she was born at 36 weeks to the day, like a late term preemie. And we had received the steroid shots and she had no NICU stay. And my C-section was playful and flawless. And like she was just typical and healthy in every single way. And given my history of preterm labor, we knew the twins were high risk and the fact that there was two of them, but I had no idea just how premature they were going to be. And so it was a huge shock. So that you were saying, as you've kind of talked through your own experience, you learned uh, or understood that the birth with the twins you uh, was traumatizing for you at that time. Do you care or would you be open to sharing any part of that experience? Yeah, I would be happy to share. So with the twins, when everything happens so fast, it's when I think back about that first day of being in the hospital and then going into labor, I had been monitored with my husband in the hospital for a couple of days and we hadn't slept and I couldn't eat because there was this concern I was going to give birth and everything calmed down my contraction stopped and it felt like, okay, I can finally rest. My delivery doctor said he thought everything was quiet enough that I could have dinner. So I ate grilled cheese and broccoli (laughs) dinner, went to sleep. And then I woke up and I felt like I had to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom, tiptoed like around my husband because it was the first sleep he'd gotten too. And when I tried to pee, like nothing came out. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's so weird, but it felt like I needed to. So I, we called the nurse and she had done an exam and was very professional, but finished. And she looked at me and she said, I feel a bulging sack in a baby's head. You're going to the operating room right now. And we're calling your doctor. You're going to deliver your twins. And so we're rushed to the operating room while my doctor drove in. I think he lived about a half hour away, but it just felt like we were waiting forever and then my contractions took off and we didn't know the sexes so but they did let my husband announce what each baby was and so they brought out when my first son Lachlan was born he I all I remember was you know it was just so aggressive like the delivery and I don't know if it's because it was twins or what no one prepared us for like this is what's going to happen after your babies are born, they're going to go to the NICU or we didn't discuss viability. There was no time. And I wasn't even scared because I couldn't even like process. I wasn't even present in the moment. And I remember like as the surgery is going on, looking over to my side and there was like two doors open and two isolates with a NICU team around each one. And it was Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is like, this is happening. These babies are being born and my son, Lachlan. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you said 24 weeks at mm-hmm. this point. So you had already experienced, you you know, the premature birth. That was like the one experience that was, you said also a C-section. Mm-hmm. So all you have at this point is to go based off of what you've experienced before and no mm-hmm. real additional depth of information. Correct. This is just, you're figuring out what's happening as you see it. As you see it. You hear about this happening I knew they were very likely to be early and I was trying to prepare myself for a NICU stay, but 30 
four weeker is a lot different than a 24 weeker. And I, I just remember 24 weeks, 24 weeks age of viability at the time. That's all I had equated it to. And so I got there and I was, I remember wanting to ask that question, like, what are our chances here? And I never asked it. I was afraid that was going to be negative on my psyche. And it was never offered. They never asked if we wanted to know, but I could tell that they were going to fight for them. And so that's what we were going to do too. Okay. So what's the span of time from the time you were like trying to go to the bathroom to the time you're in the operating room. I bet it was less than two hours. Okay. So it's pretty quick. There's really not enough time to get your head around anything. No. You just no there. You're just you're like a vessel and you're just you're gone. So when my first son was born, I just remember thinking, like, I just want to hear his cry. I want to hear his cry. All I want to hear is that cry. And I didn't know what I was gonna look at. I don't know what a twenty four weeker looks like. And they brought him out. And I remember somebody, it must have been a respiratory therapist or nurse counting one. No cry. And I think they got to maybe five or six. And then you hear this cry. And like a a 24-weeker sounds exactly like a a newborn kitten when it cries. It's like the softest little thing. And they brought him, you know, and he was like perfect and beautiful and tiny right by my head. And my husband said, it's a boy. And then he went off to the NICU. And then my son Lex came out screaming. And so I was like, okay, he's going to fight. And we're going to do that for him. And then they went to the, they went to the NICU. I went into recovery and it felt like hours and hours. And it probably was probably six or seven hours before we got to go see them. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that followed two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Okay, right. So your husband is stayed with you. He was with me the whole time. Didn't get to go with them. Yes. Got it. Yeah, they were born about almost 1 a.m. And it was, I bet, 6 or 7 a.m. before I got to go see them. And I remember just that's all I wanted to do. I want to go see my babies. And again, like you're saying, in my head, I know what it's like to see my 36-weeker preemie, you know, not preemie, but late-term preemie who is like perfect. So that's what I'm expecting to see when I go into the NICU. And while I'm waiting in recovery, I still have a catheter in and blood started showing up in my urine. So they're starting to get concerned that something's going on. And I'm just thinking, I just want to see my babies. I want to see my babies. So when they rolled me and my husband up into the hospital room, it felt like forever. I'm sure it wasn't. But their rooms were right next to each other at the very end of this really long hall. And as we're like going through elevators and long hallways, I just started getting really anxious and really nervous. And the closer we got, I just kind of started panicking. And they move around furniture and they get me in one of my boys' rooms. And all I see is his isolates. They're literally a pound, one pound, 10 ounces. Mm -hmm. And their head was like the size of an avocado. Like they're teeny, but they're covered in tape and they're intubated. And you can't see, Mm -hmm. it it didn't look like a baby. Mm -hmm. It's a creature and it's machines are keeping this thing alive. And so I'm like looking at this baby Probably not even naively thinking I'm going to hold my baby, but that that didn't happen for a week. And I'm trying to process it. And the nurse who was working there starts telling me, okay, so, you know, this sound is there. It's monitoring their whatever, their heart or their temperature or respiratory stuff. And, and she's going, you can come here whenever you want. She's like, she's going through like the introduction to the NICU and it feels like she's talking faster and faster and I'm getting more nauseous and just like, I feel like I'm going to explode at this moment. And all I want her to do is to shut up, but I don't even have the wherewithal to get that out. And then one point I just go, I am going to throw up. And Mm -hmm. so that's exactly what I did. And then I remember after that, I'm just like, I'm in hell right now. How is this my reality? Get me out of here. And so we're in there and then they said, well, we're going to go see the other boy. And then it's that, and I hate admitting it and saying this, but I know it, I mean, it's my truth and other mothers relate to it, but your body goes into survival mode and you don't want to connect with these things that you might lose. And so it was, I didn't even want to go see my other son. You know, it was just like, no, like this is a dream. This is a nightmare. Get me out of here. But we did, we went and saw him and then headed back to recovery. Okay. Right. So with like all of those kind of instincts and like fears, I guess, coming up, what did you do? Shut down. For me, shut down. It was get me back to my recovery room. Get me out of here. We Did you saw see your other son. Yes. Not- yeah. Before we saw my other son, I remember the nurse saying, "Do you want a picture?" To my husband and I, and I was no. Like I don't want any part of this reality. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Well, I'll tell you what. Let me take a picture. You can delete it later, but just let me take it." And I let her, and I'm grateful for that. 
that was, I'm very grateful that she pushed me because I think it made sense later and it Mm -hmm. paid off. So then we did go see my other son briefly, like a really quick visit, took a picture and headed back to my recovery room. So I guess maybe I'll find out later, but in terms of like the feeling physically sick, you are also going through your own physical stuff. And now you have this super intense also emotional experience. So I don't know if you can tell what's what, like why are you feeling so sick? Is it both? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. What was happening for you? I can tell you I never got sick with my first C-section. I think this was more of an emotional, like primitive response to what was going on and trying to catch up. So when I got back to the recovery room, it's when family kind of started flowing in and we're so blessed to have an incredible tribe. And I think they did the right thing. They let us lead. They weren't pushy. They didn't ask questions that we didn't want to answer or ask. But I was like very numb throughout that day. And this blood thing in my urine kept being an issue. And so they took me for a scan to see what was going on. And the doctor had nicked my bladder during the C-section and they said that happens and a lot of times the bladder heals and it's fine. We'll watch it for the rest of the day. Well, it didn't heal. I continued to bleed. And so 18 hours after my twins were born, I was put under for bladder repair surgery. So it was a lot to that moment was really difficult. Yeah. Your husband was with you this whole time. Yes. So, I mean, I know he's not here to talk about his experience, but like he's also going through this. And now, like with the kids, and now he's has to be, you know, my wife concerned about you. And that's a lot. Yes. For both of you, obviously, it's just a ton of stuff to deal with. Like, all three of you are now medically kind of fragile. Yes. That's, That's a lot. Yeah. My surgery went well, but I had to carry around a catheter for almost two weeks while my bladder healed. And and that was the worst part of the recovery. It was absolute hell for those first two weeks, just everything that was going on. I mean, it just felt like everything that could go wrong was happening to me. Somehow I did connect with my boys. So I got to touch my son Lex, when he was about, he was less than a week old and I got to put my hand in and he grabbed my finger. And that I think was a turning point that, okay, like he's strong. If he can do this, I can do it. I have to, you know? And so then it became like a fight next to both the boys or I mean, even till now, but especially during the NICU. And I call their story the smallest fight for that reason. So they, I mean, right. You really needed that. And I assume he needed that too, needed that connection with you and yes. with him. So in there, this is just, you know, a, a week in and they're still yes. fairly fragile. You said Very. in for 101 days. Yes. Yeah. I don't do math, but in terms of weeks, yeah. that's a while. Yeah. Um, and were you in the hospital the whole time too in your recovery? No, I went home pretty quickly. Like I think I stayed maybe one extra night, one more than you would if you had a C-section, maybe. But the recovery is pretty similar to a C-section. I just had to carry a catheter around. All right. But then obviously after you go home, mm-hmm. you're trying to recover, but the boys are still there. So like, how did you navigate that? And what was, yeah. how often were you there? I remember asking a nurse early on when we were leaving, she said, are you coming? And I said, what's, what's appropriate? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And she said, it, 
every situation's completely different and do what feels right to you. We lived about 40 minutes away and were given the gift of staying at a friend's condo that was maybe five minutes from the hospital for those first few weeks when it was the most dire, which was incredible. But we also had a two-year-old to manage. So we never moved in. I never stayed a night in the NICU because it wasn't in the cards for all those reasons. My recovery, my twin, I mean, my um, daughter and my husband. So we tried to get to the hospital every day, once a day. And sometimes we'd stay longer. Sometimes it'd be a short visit, but that's what I was able to to manage. And then how, if you can refresh my memory on the timeline, they, each of the boys had a surgery. Yeah. 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 Several surgeries. So my son Lex, well, both of them had PDAs. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but patent ductus arteriosus, which is an open valve in your heart. And when you're born, it closes because they're so premature, the valve wasn't closing. And so it was making their heart not work properly. So there was this concern from early on that both of them were going to need heart surgery. They both had brain bleeds. And so there was this concern that they were going to develop hydrocephalus and need emergency surgery for a shunt. So we're walking, you know, this journey with both of them with similar concerns. And sometimes it wasn't even taking it one day at a time. It was taking it one breath at a time because you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time. So Lex got very sick and ended up requiring that heart surgery. So he was four weeks old and he had that PDA closed and his health almost immediately improved. He's still uh, two pounds at this time. So like just to even think about that or I mean, cardio surgeon and like what he saw and did is just, I can't wrap my head around that to this day. But then Lex did go on to his brain bleed result and that has caused no issues. And then he did have a hernia surgery towards the end of his NICU stay. We, both the boys have been in therapy, but now he's completely typical in every way as a six-year-old. And then my son Lachlan, he was able to dodge that heart surgery Somehow, but he did develop hydrocephalus. So his brain was not able to absorb the cerebral spinal fluid because of his brain bleed. And he had his first brain surgery for a temporary shunt when he was almost five weeks old. So he was also about two pounds. And then that one was always felt scarier in the heart surgery. And then we found out about a week later that that surgery had caused a second severe brain bleed. So it was, we had lots of conversations about what that might look like for him and no one can really tell you. It's a, we're going to have to wait and see. As he developed, it wasn't like clear at that point that there was a CP diagnosis. No, it wasn't. It was, he definitely has brain damage to what extent we don't know. So Alec, how are you doing throughout all this? Like what is happening for you? So I, throughout this time, I'm like an overreactor survival mode where I'm doing great. Like I'm working, I'm keeping my house in order. My daughter's doing great. I'm writing, like journaling about all this. And then I am buying every single book about preemies and I'm trying to like get a medical degree in (laughs) a month, you know, basically. Because I just, I wanted to be really active in what was happening and what all these medical terminology, what all this medical terminology meant. And I did good, but it was not real. It wasn't what was really going on. And I didn't know that Mm. for a long time. All right. So hyper-functioning. 
Hyper. Mm-hmm. And if that changed, at what point did that change? So the boys came home on oxygen. They had multiple doctor appointments a week. I'm pumping. I pumped for like nine months so that they could have the antibodies, even though they still had formula. And it is nonstop, which it's nonstop for any new mom. But when you have a two-year-old and medically complex twins and all of this, it's just like I even now look back, I don't even really know how I did it, but I was exhausted. It was, but I'm still functioning. And I remember when their first birthday approached, we planned this big party, their summer birthday. Most of our family and friends had never met the twins because they were so vulnerable that we just protected them for that very first year, which was very isolating, but it felt like what needed to happen. So around their first birthday was my first real feeling of that birth trauma where I, um, it's anxiety. I didn't know at the time what it was, but it was anxiety and it's insomnia and it's like this excitement. And I thought it initially dismissed it as, oh, I'm just throwing a big party. I'm doing too much. It's their birthday. This is exciting. And then everything's okay. Flash forward to about their second birthday. They are finally feeling normal and healthy. So we can take on more risk and my daughter can go to school and we can, you know, go to a park without freaking out. And then like my son Lachlan with his disability, we kind of had a better understanding of what his life would look like and could kind of predict, we could do this. Like, this is okay. It's not overwhelming anymore. And all of that produced this sense of security for me, subconsciously and consciously. And once I finally had that, I was no longer in survival mode and it all came rushing down. It was like, okay, now that you have the wherewithal to handle all this trauma, here you go. Right. That is an experience that a lot of people describe once they get yeah. in the survival mode of well, all kinds of traumas. But there's a particular kind of challenge is too light of a word to say when that comes up for you and you're in the middle of child, like kid care when they're little. And yeah. you're still needed at the same level, but now you have this flood of stuff that comes in that you're just like trying to yes. wade through. It just like all of it can a lot, a lot. Again, that's not a scientific term for how intense it is. But <laughs> <laughs> it works for me a lot, a lot. It was. <laughs> and my big soapbox now is just talking about birth trauma and the fact that it can come later. And I feel like in a lot of ways, I, I learned the hard way. But I didn't know that my twins could survive and that there was still trauma and grief to be had. I just thought, well, they're alive. Like I should just be happy and grateful and life is normal. And that is, I think, doing yourself a disservice. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.
Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. I mean, and it makes intuitive sense that things are fine, so I should be fine or would be fine. But just exactly to your point, like you can't, there's only so much our brains can deal with at any given point, And survival is the most fundamental thing. Mm-hmm. Like that has to be first. So it's like, it's actually quite a cool thing in some ways that like your brain's not trying to knock you all the way out. Sometimes it does. I'll say that. But you had to do everything else gets kind of set aside, not because it's not important, but it's just because you literally wouldn't be able to function. Right. You have to function in order to keep them going. Right. What's so around that time, and I was suffering with like debilitating anxiety that led to insomnia, that led to exhaustion, and then it just is just tailspin. And I was getting it in waves, uh, and I still do. I started this journey of like, what is going on? Because I think we do an okay job checking up on, there's a couple safety nets for moms postpartum where like the pediatrician will follow up for baby blues. But I don't know any mother that can go to a well visit for their child and be like, oh yeah, let's talk about my, me, you know, cause you're not in that headspace. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's enough. And even your delivery doctor, you're maybe 12 weeks and then you're on your own. So there's this huge void for the mental health piece that I want to fill. Yeah, it's very, very important. I'd say, I mean, certainly physical health and attending to that, making sure you're good physically is just as important. But the impacts of mental health and having that first, that kind of trauma, but then that kind of anxiety, it can go on for years, years and years. And for a lot of people, it does, even if you're not in the the most intense parts of it. And with things like birth trauma, birth dates, anniversaries, things like that, or reminders or certain things like you could feel like you've like healed or you've healed enough in certain parts of your journey. And then something else comes up that brings up this other aspect to it that you thought, Mm -hmm. okay, I thought I was done with that, but here it is again. And that can keep happening. Not that it's going to knock you on your ass every time, Yeah, but it certainly gets in the way. It does. Yeah. So I've found, so I started going into therapy, which is really helpful. And 
just started seeing different kinds of doctors to try and find help. And I mean, it's been a long journey. I'm not healed though, but it for me, it always comes in waves. It's never really a trigger, like a specific trigger. It's always my body that's responding in this like fight or flight mode. It never matches what's going on in my brain. Like it's not practical and I fight it, but it's always the worst. There too, before the twins were born. And it's kind of like this, like tidal waves coming in and and it's that anniversary thing that you're talking about so i'm six the twins are six years old now and it still happens it's not it doesn't knock me off my feet as bad but it's definitely still there and it still visits which is once i learned this and i know to expect it it's kind of how i come up with cards of hope which is my new campaign for mothers of birth trauma great and can you talk about that yeah Absolutely. So I'm a painter and muralist and everything, all my art stopped when the twins were born uh, because I just did not have the resources. And after I was trained to process all this birth trauma and NICU, I just kind of had this idea of how I could use my art to help other mothers feel less alone and to just spread hope. And so I don't know. It just like kind of came to me one day and I was like, I know what I can do. This is what I can do. So what I, about a year ago, I started what I call cards of hope and any mother of birth trauma can sign up for one. And I send them a little piece of art every month. And I usually write a personal note. And then on the front, it'll have their, the day they gave birth on it with this year, 2023. And then it'll say, you are not alone. It's just a little simple piece of paper that they get in the month that they had delivered just to let them know they're not alone. And it's been healing in itself doing this project. It kind of gives me purpose. And the response has been unbelievable and makes me want to keep going. That's awesome. And you've been doing it for how long? About a year. Yeah. So 2023 was the first time I started when moms fill out the form at the bottom, it says, is there anything else you would like to share? I I don't ask them anything. I just ask for their mailing information, the day they gave birth and their name. That's all I ask. And almost every mom pours their heart out in that section. And the stories are like, it just gives me goosebumps Mm -hmm. thinking about it because you have moms who gave birth 40, 50 years ago. They are talking about how they're still dealing and processing with their trauma. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks because it's not like that you can't take away what happened. It's a thing that happened, but I think psychologically, emotionally anyways, like part of the goal is to figure out how to live with, with what did happen in a way that it it is part of your life story as opposed to like something that feels like it takes over Yes, all of the time. And that can take a while, especially yeah. if they're, you know, for I'm thinking of those people who have been dealing with for so long, like back 40 years ago, like well, where would they have gone to get help? It wasn't like there was a perinatal mental health specialist or any no. mental health, somebody who understands what happens in there. Right. Um, so it's good to know that people are still seeking healing and benefiting mm-hmm. from that support. And it sucks that people have mm-hmm. had to suffer for so long. Yeah. Um, and like the healing that you're providing, uh, that's what I'm going to call it as a piece of healing is so important, just super duper important. I think it's really important. I think it's really, really important. 
moms reach out to me, like a common response is through sharing our story on social media is you've made me realize that my birth trauma is valid or you made me realize that this is something I'm dealing with, you know, eight years ago or eight years later, nine years. And it's, I think we're us women, moms are pretty good at gaslighting ourselves too. And I know I did it to myself, like with Oh, you're my twin survived. So it should be that should be it. Like, what's your problem? Why are you ungrateful? And I think you can have a traumatic birth with or without a NICU say. Absolutely. And it can be a moment that causes trauma that you can deal with forever, you know? And I just I want moms to know that their trauma is valid. It's a thing. And I, I think we need to be talking more about it. Absolutely. And by you sharing your story on social and here and on all the ways that you do is it sheds a light on it. I mean, not everyone's trauma is going to be exactly the same, but I do think there are bits and pieces of each person's trauma that like that overlap. There's some really core stuff in there that can feel the same, even if the story is not exactly the same. That, I mean, just you being on here and sharing that, like going to therapy, that therapy is an, is an option. I don't you know, know where you are on your path, but that even people who are years out can still go and yeah. healing in multiple different ways through art and through therapy and through whatever it is that resonates with them and their soul and their path. And so having your journey out there and the way that you're healing from it is providing another path to healing a while letting people know that they're not alone. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. What you, I love when people are able to turn their pain into this passion that ends up mm -hmm. helping other people. It's pretty cool. Cause it's like you said, when you started, I think healing for you as well, like you yeah. still get healing out of it. Absolutely. While others Absolutely. benefit from it as well. Yeah. And something you said earlier resonated with me about the grieving, I think is the word I want to use with this journey of, I mean, even having a son with a disability, his life's going to look different. There are new layers that it's like things have come up recently about what my life, what I thought my life was going to be and then what my life has to be and what it is and trying to be accepting and all the things, you know, so yeah. it's just another layer that I didn't see coming. <laughs> yeah. Right. It is. I mean, that is a whole layer of this that, yeah, we didn't really touch on, but it is very prevalent in there's loss in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Not that that means you're going to feel loss in the same way forever, but just that whole idea of this isn't what I expected or thought it would be takes a long time mm -hmm. to get used yeah. to. Because it's not like you started from point A and you went to point B and here we are. It's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. It's a whole process for like, I don't know, ever. Yeah. Which is like kind of could be depressing, but it's also like you said, accepting this is what it is. And there can be some freedom in that. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of books about neuroplasticity. And I'm not going to say this eloquently, but in the book, they were talking about grieving and what that is neurologically and how it's like unlearning that a certain thing. Well, this was talking about specific loss, unlearning that that person is going to be there for you. And I relate to that. It's unlearning your life how you thought your life was going to go. And it's such a strong neurological understanding mm -hmm. and you're grieving that loss and it's hard. That's a cool way to look at it though. But yeah, it is incredibly difficult. I, I mean, we can just use a lot more compassion all around. Like life does some wacky 
messed up stuff sometimes. And like in your process, able to take your, your skill set and your passion and find out how to apply your own healing through that. Mm -hmm. Super cool. So where can people find out more about the Cards of Hope? The best place will be on my website. Um, my name's Savannah Jane O'Malley, but I paint under Savvy Jane and it's spelled S-A-V-Y-J-A-N-E.com. So just SavvyJane.com. You can read or find some things I've written, um, articles as well as more about the twin story and birth trauma. And you can sign up for Cards of Hope there too. Oh, cool. Thank you so much for sharing this. I know that there are people who are listening that can not only feel less alone by hearing your story, but also learn that either that they can still get help or even therapists out there who are trying to understand how they can help people that they're supporting even more. I just appreciate you sharing so much. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. You can find more about the Cards of Hope campaign at SavvyJane.com. And certainly if you know anybody who's going through something similar to this, similar to Savannah's story, please share this episode. It is so important for people to know that there are other people like them going through similar things. You know how important it is to know that you don't feel alone in a struggle. It is so much harder when you feel like you're going through something by yourself. And for any of you out there struggling, needing additional support, go check out my courses at wellmindperineedle.com slash courses and see through the multiple courses that are available if any of them resonate for you and you think could help you on your journey to understand why you feel the way that you feel and getting back to feeling like you'd like to feel. Thank you so much for being with me. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're gonna talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.